Jordan, I have a special guest for you for today's episode. <gasps> the queen? <laughs> no, not quite the queen. She's a little busy being upset about Netflix's The Crown, probably. <laughs> it's someone almost as good. Our producer, Cody. Oh, that's okay. That'll do. Oh, I'm glad I'm okay, Jordan. I, I will say people have told me that I do remind them a lot of the queen in personality and aura. <laughs> you do have a great British accent. I'll save the accent for the premium feed. Um, but uh, now our wonderful listeners can all stop wondering who I am, as I know they are. So Cody's here because he helped us out with our story today. He was the one who's talked to our interview guest, someone the New Yorker calls the serial killer detector. Ooh, sounds like Minority Report. Did you interview Tom Cruise? Uh, we did not interview Tom Cruise. Um, the technology is different and the Tom is different, as you'll see, because we talked to Tom Hargrove. He's a former journalist who, in August 2010, informed the police department in Gary, Indiana, just south of Chicago, that he suspected they might have an uncaught serial killer on the loose. How did he know that? Because his algorithm told him. Ooh. And how did the police respond? They basically ignored him. <laughs> Was he right? Well, no spoilers, but he is called the serial killer detector. I'll let him tell you the story. So today on Wild Wild Tech, an algorithm that uses data to catch killers, how it works, and the surprising, complicated challenges to making it work better. Well, I'm going to go ahead and take the day off because Cody's just, you know, nailing it. We'll be right back with more from our producer Cody and his time with the serial killer detector. Today, our producer Cody is telling us about his conversation with someone who's using technology to catch more killers than we currently catch. I first heard about this story from Alec Wilkinson's article in The New Yorker, which featured Thomas Hargrove. Cody, you got to talk to Thomas. What was he like? He was great to talk to, and I'm very glad he agreed to do it. He's also clearly a hard worker, and he's driven by a cause. And to understand his cause, it's important to understand a certain statistic. The FBI estimates that in the 1950s, we solved around 90% of homicides in the U.S. today, and that number has dropped to about 60%. Geez, you'd hope that would be the kind of thing that would improve over time. Yeah, that statistic is one that no matter how many times I hear it, I still find it upsetting. It's the sort of thing that we'd want to get better at. Absolutely. Enter Thomas. My name is Tom Hargrove. I'm the founder and chairman of a nonprofit organization called the Murder Accountability Project. And he's going to help us make sense of what happened in Gary a little bit later. But first, I want to give some background on how he created his algorithm. So Thomas is a lifelong journalist, and it was through journalism that he became interested in the issue of unsolved homicides. Among the projects I did when I was a, an investigative reporter was a year-long national reporting project looking into unsolved murders in the United States. We assembled a database using information provided by the FBI, and we realized right off the bat that there were tremendous holes in the data, and so we started contacting states that do not participate in reporting data, and we acquired data from those places. As part of that project, I had hundreds of interviews with homicide detectives around the country. 
And I came to realize with some alarm how few resources they have, that we have underfunded police and that we have underfunded uh, the kinds of personnel that police desperately need. There are not enough homicide detectives. There are not enough trained homicide detectives. There are not enough forensic technicians. There's not enough uh, forensic laboratory capacity. That surprises me because like, I know everything is underfunded, but it seems like in the States, the one thing that gets money is the cops. Yeah, no, that's definitely a accurate impression. I think, Jordan, police in America seem to get a lot of money. I definitely had the same reaction. And I pressed Thomas on this no less than three times <laughs> just to make sure he was completely clear. Because when you bring up the funding of police in America, you get a decidedly politicized reaction. So I asked him about this, and here's what he said. In a growing number of cities, the majority of the unsolved murders involve African-American victims. And that's simply not right. The Murder Accountability Project is nonpartisan. We do not care who the next president is, at least not as a group. We passionately care about the importance of accurately counting homicide. And we will go to the wall on that. We do believe that much of the burden of death is being unfairly borne in the inner cities by African-American victims. And it is with great passion that we are trying to reverse those unfortunate trends. We absolutely believe that Black Lives Matter. We will say that on the record. We will say that with great passion. And those are the lives that we're fundamentally trying to save. So I hope anyone who thinks that, yes, we're pro-police, we are, simply because we believe in the enforcement of law, as any American or most Americans, we hope, agree with us. But we do believe that there is a fundamental unfairness as to who's doing the dying and whose murders go unsolved. Yeah, Jordan, this is going back to your initial statement about how that statistic about homicides in the U.S. seems to be hiding a lot of things. Yeah, like how the police are too busy killing people to be solving murders. So Thomas really cleared that up for me. He's not an apologist for law enforcement by any means, and he was more than willing to talk about police reform and things like rewriting charters of local police departments, but ultimately... The goal of his organization is singular and nonpartisan. It's to use data and technology to reduce the number of unsolved homicides. And they're motivated by the fact that unsolved murder disproportionately affects women and minority groups. In the case of women specifically, Thomas says. The FBI, they think that 70% of all serial murders are of women. Uh, Radford reports 54% of all serial victims are women. Both estimates are far accelerated over the rate at which women are killed. Only about uh, 22% of all murders involve female victims. But the rate at which women, women are victim of serial killers is much, much higher. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. But that makes sense. Right. And we heard a second ago what he said about unsolved murders and Black Americans. But another statistic he gave that alarmed me was this. We're not sure why. But Native American murders are the least reported by race that we, we are aware of. I've heard that there's a lot of problems with people going missing as well, right? Like Native Americans going missing and not being found. So I guess it makes sense that, sadly, there would also be a lot of murders that wouldn't get reported or solved. Yeah, we just, as a culture, sadly, just don't 
care about indigenous nations in America are just criminally overlooked and underreported. So this is what's so important about Thomas's team's algorithm. It's looking at real data that clearly shows which murders aren't being solved, and we can see how these rates might be unjust towards specific populations. I decided that we're going to try to use data to make a difference. I created a, a nonprofit group, uh, put together a stellar group of uh, directors from around the country, various uh, subject experts on the matter of unsolved murder. And we have a public-facing series of data that you can see at uh, www.murderdata.org. Murder data sounds like a video game about accounting and guns. <laughs> I actually, one of my favorite video games recently is called Murder by Numbers, which sounds a lot like this. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what is Murder by Numbers? It is... A game where you play as a detective uh, set in the 90s and you have a little robot companion and you solve murders by looking for clues and talking to people and solving like Picross puzzles. It's weirdly cute despite all of the murder. In terms of machines solving murders, I would say yes, very similar. Thomas's machine is probably not a cute video game character, but it is a, a Cool technology. There's a lot to it. But in layman's terms, Thomas's website shows you murders that have taken place in the U.S. And then you use filters like location of the murder, location of remains, victim's race, age or gender or the type of weapon used, all in service of helping either civilians or law enforcement see patterns. We can use this data to look at patterns of past serial killers who have been caught but law enforcement can also use this data to interpret which murders might have a single perpetrator, which ultimately will help detectives catch them. Thomas says it like this. We've developed an algorithm that will turn the hundreds of thousands of murders that we've acquired data on into tens of thousands of groups, each group trying to group similar murders, murders of the same kind of victim, male or female, the same kind of death, the weapon that was used to kill the victim in the same kind of community. Usually we take it down to the county level. And then the computer makes one more calculation. What was the clearance rate for that cluster? Meaning how many murders actually resulted in criminal charges? The algorithm sorts those tens of thousands of small groups, and it looks for clusters that had an elevated rate of failure to solve. And then it, uh, it, it alerts us uh, what those clusters were. Uh, when you run the algorithm, you start to see some of your favorite serial killers. Like the Green River Killer, also known as Gary Ridgway. Who is in prison for the rest of his life, and rightfully so. He used to hold the record. He was convicted of killing, I think, 49, 49 women over his career. He claimed to have killed maybe perhaps up to 70, but a court of law convicted him for 49. I do not know anything about the Green River Killer. Yeah, I had no idea. He's a big one and probably one of the most infamous. And if you go to murderdata.org and dig into their tools, they use him as an example of how they work. You set the parameters a certain way, adjust a few sliders, and boom, big circle over Seattle. That's the Green River Killer. So it was really an impressive demonstration to me when I went in and tried this out. At first, a lot of the websites seemed pretty stats heavy, but being able to visualize the clusters in this way made it make sense. You set the years to the period the Green River Killer was active, 1980 to 2000, and since we're looking for unsolved homicide, we set the clearance rate low, around 25%. 
when you do that, you get a unique result. And this is from the Murder Accountability Project's website. These are women who were killed by other type or unknown weapons. Since most of Gary Ridgway's 48 female victims were found out of doors, medical examiners usually had difficulty determining the precise cause of death. This is also from their website. The Murder Accountability Project believes these clusters with lower than expected clearance rates have an elevated probability of containing serial killings, but they are not proof of the presence or absence of multiple victim offenders. So not definitive proof, but this is a pretty clear demonstration of the potential power of this tool. Yeah, this seems kind of silly in hindsight that we have this kind of technology, but so few solved murders these days, right? Like I imagine precincts are using like Windows 98 still. Oh yeah, you wouldn't be too far off. Thomas said something similar. And yeah, it's like, if we have these kinds of tools out there, why don't we solve more murders? And Thomas said that a big part of it is a severe lack of data. But despite that, there's an even more powerful example of the promise of the Murder Accountability Project. So I asked Thomas a simple question. Does this actually work in the real world? We think so. There's a kind of magic to carefully counting things. You start to see patterns. And we've discovered that uncaught serial killers often leave a pattern that you can visually see. We're gonna take a quick break and then we'll find out exactly what happened in Gary, Indiana. Welcome back to Wild Wild Tech, where we're talking about an algorithm that helps detectives solve murders. We're resuming our conversation with Cody, our producer, and we had left off on this question. This algorithm that Thomas Hargrove was motivated to create, did it work and help catch serial killers that haven't been caught yet? Our friend Thomas has a story that will answer that question. First, a quick recap. One of the key mechanisms of the algorithm we're talking about is that it groups homicides with similar qualities like location, method of killing, and victim demographics into clusters. One of the clusters was in Gary, Indiana. Uh, 15 strangulations of women, not a single one solved. And so I called the public information officer for the Gary Police Department. He said he checked and he could assure me that there were no unresolved serial murders in Gary, Indiana. And that was the last time I had a conversation with them. I, I continued to communicate with them or try to communicate with them, giving the names of the unsolved uh, strangulations of the victims and asking, don't you think you should look into this? Uh, we started uh, sending registered letters to the mayor and police chief, alerting them to the fact that I was about to publish a story saying there's an uncaught serial killer in Gary, Indiana. So we, we got absolute radio silence from the police. Yeah, go to the press. That's the way to threaten them. And he did. We published our story. We published our series. It won a bunch of awards back in 2010. And in 2014, a man named Darren Dion Van uh, was arrested for killing a woman and leaving her body in a bathtub in a Motel 6 in Hammond, Indiana, which is next door to Gary. This woman's name was Africa Hardy, and Van had hired her through an escort service, which was a common theme in his crimes. The Hammond Police Department made an arrest quickly, and during their interview with Mr. Van, he confessed to the murder, and as sometimes happens with these guys, 
uh, he confessed to a great deal more. He said he'd been active for a long time, a number of years, going back to the mid-1990s. And he said uh, there were recent murders he had done that the police had not apparently realized. And he agreed to go back into Gary, Indiana, and to show some of his other crime sites. And they recovered six more victims of previously unknown murders that Mr. Van had committed. That means seven, at least seven women died after we had tried to warn the Gary Police Department that there was an active serial killer in their community. Oh, gosh. Yeah. My impression from a lot of like true crime narratives that are so popular right now is that this is really common, that authorities are notified about suspicious behavior and don't act on it until it's too late and other people have been hurt. And that was sort of how I felt, too, is that lives could have been saved. Thomas and his organization had used technology, had used an algorithm to to detect this and made the effort to warn police. How does Thomas feel about it? I'm glad you asked, because I also imagined that this had to stir up some emotions. So I asked Thomas that question. When Mr. Van was arrested and the announcement was made, uh, the Gary Police Department held a press conference the next day. And as you can imagine, the uh, one of the first questions the police chief was asked was, Chief, were you aware that there was a serial killer active in Gary? And he said, absolutely not. And um, I guess my response was anger. We put out stories indicating that, that we had been trying to engage with the police for a number of months back in 2010 to warn them. To this day, do not understand why the Gary Police Department uh, did not act on our concerns. I wish I was surprised. Yeah. It's, it's infuriating, but it's also, like, we've heard this story before a lot, not just with murder, but with all sorts of other crimes, you know, of it sucks, man. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I think we've seen this a few times on our show, like policy lags behind technology. Mm-hmm. Mm. And therefore, our institutions don't always make the best use of tech. Joshua, I think you saw this in the Army Twitch episode, like the Army's recruiting on Twitch. That's obviously a problematic practice, but Congress barely knows what Twitch is right? to even get started on regulation. And Jordan, does this match up with your perception of how things work out here? I wonder if it's bewildering to you seeing how policy happens in the United States, which isn't really run like a country. It's run like 50 small countries. And so, like, what do we do about it? And Thomas talked about how important it is to have policies that require things like reporting data on homicide. We just want policymakers to know that there is a consequence to not adequately providing necessary resources, especially homicide detectives and forensic technicians. The consequences is that the murders go unsolved and the killing goes on, that there is an inverse relationship between the rate at which homicides are cleared and murders occur. The more you allow killers to walk the street, the worse the homicide rate gets. We can prove that statistically. And we, uh, we hope that becomes a more common conversation in America. Jeez, man. And we've heard the story before, right? Not just with murder, but with all sorts of other crimes, you know? It, it sucks, man. I know. And so, like, what do we do about it? How do we fix it? 
And of course, Thomas's solution is better data and therefore better technological resources for our institutions that deal with murder. But there are systemic challenges to making that happen. Remember, Joshua, how you said you imagined police precincts having like old Windows computers? You're basically spot on. Many police departments have kind of primitive data systems. We do this because there is no national list of unsolved murders. Wait, so this information isn't out there anywhere? That statement jumped out at me as well. So there is no centralized homicide data reporting system in the United States, as there is in other Western countries. Yeah, I mean, I can just sit here on my phone and look up the Office for National Statistics numbers on murder, like by year, by, you know, area, by everything. Like the data is just there. It's a ridiculous thing about this country. And we also uh, have this problem with guns. It's a pretty consistent issue affecting crime in this country. Right. And I guess because the states is so big as well, like it's just it probably feels just unmanageable. Don't give us an excuse, Jordan. I'm sorry. I don't want to always be bashing on you all the time. Anyways, there is no official count. Thomas's work clearly shows how useful simply counting murders can be, and yet we have no official count. So there is an attempt out there, and it's something created by the FBI called VICAP. The FBI created back in the late 80s the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, VICAP. Uh, If you've ever seen the television show um, Criminal Minds, Uh, You see these uh, FBI employees jetting around in their own personal jet to various crime scenes. Well, it ain't like that. (laughs) Wait, you're saying Criminal Minds isn't isn't like real life? I've never seen this show, so. (laughs) (laughs) It's, you know, very flashy crime scene psychological profiling show. Yeah, I guess it makes the FBI look a lot cooler than it is, according to Thomas. But they're talking about VICAP. And uh, one of the assignments uh, that VICAP has is to try to work serial cases and to try to identify them. Uh, The uh, early designers of VICAP came up with a very good idea, which was to invite police around the country to report uh, their unsolved murders, especially their unsolved murders that look serial, that look like they might have a sexual component, that look like they might have been committed by a person who is capable of committing multiple murders that looked like they were committed by strangers. It was a good idea in the 1980s. It is a good idea today. Hardly any police departments are participating in reporting to VICAP. It is a mistake. And the overwhelming majority of murders that should have been reported to the FBI were not because it's a voluntary program. All the FBI can do is beg, please send us your information. I guess, especially because this is voluntary, you know, they've probably got other things that they feel like they should spend their time on instead. I mean, no one likes sitting down at a computer to type in some numbers at the end of a long day, do they? That's exactly the picture that was painted for me. Like Joshua said, it's uh, police departments using outdated computers with like MS-DOS probably you know, why take the extra step to report it? Yeah. And this is what makes the whole situation frustrating, right? Because also at the same time, you see police departments spending money on like military surplus equipment, like like vehicles that are effectively tanks. And yet 
these other like demonstrable problems that are fixable go under-resourced. Which is where Thomas's work can help out. But he continues to face all sorts of challenges, even at the federal level, because as it turns out, the FBI isn't even reporting to itself. Since uh, 1976, our records go back to 1976, the FBI has not reported a single murder, not one. What? How do you not report to your own department? (laughs) It's a good question. So Thomas is suing the FBI. (laughs) I'm sorry, that's such an American response. Sue people into doing their jobs? (laughs) Go Thomas, but like... (laughs) So yeah, go Thomas. And he's hoping the judge will ask the same question that I had, which is, why would the FBI do this? We hope that uh, Judge Jackson will ask that question because we've been dying to know. This is total speculation. Is that the FBI believed that there were no murders that it should have reported. That, after all, a murder is not a federal crime. So they might have uh, might have believed that. They have never reported how many murders they investigate. It's a total mystery how many records we may, uh, we may obtain at the conclusion of this lawsuit. But that's speculation on my part. We do not know why the FBI has never reported a single murder to itself, because the FBI also runs the Uniform Crime Report, and more importantly, the Supplementary Homicide Report, which is where you get all of the details at the case level for murders and unsolved murders. We don't know why they didn't report. They should have. They were required by Congress to, and we're hoping to fix that. The next player in this game is Congress and basically the legislative branches of the state's themselves, because it turns out at all levels of government, law enforcement institutions are essentially beholden to policymakers. So if you want law enforcement to change, you have to change policy. And as we often see on this show, policy tends to lag behind technology. On top of that, there's general hesitation in both parties to regulate police departments, especially to regulate local police departments from the federal level. Yeah, there is a very strong cultural attitude here in America where like, If the federal government steps in to tell you how to do something locally, that's like verboten. Like, you don't do that. And for things like this, I mean, there are just things that we do better together and it can be frustrating. And it can also bleed into like why, for example, we don't have an effective pandemic response. Yeah, it's sort of disappointing when there's this technology that's obviously helpful that's being caught up in what I would call red tape. So while it can be sort of a grim subject, Thomas is hopeful for the future. Oh, yeah, we, we absolutely believe technology is, is part of the solution for the future. We absolutely believe that new political realities will become apparent. Uh, we're hoping that uh, mayors come to realize that if I don't keep a handle on my murder problem, I'll sooner or later have to face an opponent who's going to promise to get a handle on it. Uh, We hope that unsolved murder becomes a political force in America, and it can become. It should. So another promising development, the use of machine learning with Thomas's ever-improving algorithm. Our article has been accepted, although it's still undergoing editing, but it's been accepted for 
publication in the Journal of Police and Criminal Psychology. We're going to release our data because we help we hope that other scholars will be able to do better than we've done. Uh, we're hoping that uh, people familiar with machine learning and artificial intelligence can set those systems loose uh, to try to better what we've done. Yeah, it seems like artificial intelligence could help out here from what I understand of it, right? Uh, how's that working out? In true AI fashion, it's asking for more data. So when I read this New Yorker story, it was by a reporter named Alec Wilkinson. Reading it, I just felt like Thomas just seemed like like this really tragic figure in a way that that was compelling to me. Like, what if the boy who cried wolf was onto something, you know? And like, nobody was listening. And that's just like a naturally interesting story. And I, and I was hoping that one of us could talk to him just for that reason. And here you have a guy who he was right and they still didn't listen and people still aren't listening. And that is incredibly frustrating because the tools are there. We don't have to be wrong, but we are. There are concerns I have about this sort of method, right? Because like just pure data is is not gonna solve our problems, right? Like data can also be manipulated or wielded. Like it's not gonna solve for institutional biases. And we do have examples of law enforcement contracting out and, and being quite effective in, in their use of data for like less noble purposes, right? Like there are protests going on in New York right now, and they are pretty effectively like locating and arresting like activist leaders. You know, it sucks, right? So like the the people doing solid police work of like finding murderers are definitely sort of like from what we've seen and heard, you know, like under-resourced, but the, the people that are in charge of a lot of decision-making just Again, this is not going to solve for their terrible allocation of said resources if they were to get more, you know? Does that make sense? Absolutely. You said earlier Thomas uh, was kind of a tragic figure, like the boy who cried wolf, except he was right. And I couldn't agree with you more. His endeavor seems incredibly frustrating and Sisyphusian in a lot of ways, but he keeps going. (laughs) The thing that gets me is how he's, you know, he's chased this thing, he's seen this problem, he's found the solution, but then he's realized that it's a much bigger problem than he maybe anticipated, and it goes all the way to the top. And that must really, really suck, given everything that we know about how difficult it is to make change at that level in, I mean, in the US, but like in other countries as well, like we've, I'm sure we've got similar things in the UK, it's a big, big problem that he can't just solve with his algorithm, no matter how impressive it is. The frustrating thing is like, this is ostensibly the thing that people assume police are good at, right? <laughs> right? Like we, we watch all these TV shows and, and what are they doing? They're solving murders, right? But uh, the reality of it is that they're not. And there should be clarity about like what public servants are doing and how effective they are and what they could be doing better. And that's that's sort of like another thing about, you know, American culture out here is that like, you can't tell law enforcement what to do. It's not met very well. <laughs> well, I am grateful for Thomas in his mission to teach law enforcement all across America how to count. And if our listeners want to get involved or at least check out the software, which I highly recommend, you can go to murderdata.org. That's murder, 
D-A-T-A dot org. Hey, can I do the next time? Next time on Wild Wild Tech, the bots that stole Christmas and all of the PS5s. Wild Wild Tech is a Studio 71 original podcast and a spoke media production. It's hosted by Joshua Rivera and Jordan Erica Weber. You can find them at jmrivera02 on Twitter and jordanweber.com. We're produced by me, Cody Hoffmachel, along with Janielle Kastner, Reyes Mendoza, Trey Jones, and Carson McCain. This episode was mixed by Will Short. Our executive producers are Stephen Perlstein and Andrew Seeley for Studio 71, and Aaliyah Tavakolian and Keith Reynolds for Spoke Media. Big thanks to Thomas Hargrove for talking to me. You can check out his work and how to get involved at murderdata.org. If you want to follow us on social media, we're at Wild Wild Tech Pod. Thanks for listening. Hey, can I do the next time since I'm on this episode? Use our promo code WildTech10. Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>